Randy Westbrook, managing attorney. Don't call it a comeback. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, Grab girl? my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios. Keyshawn Gilbert gets thrown down by Grant. No call. And then they call a little tiny ticky-tack on Keyshawn. Keyshawn got absolutely thrown down to the floor. This is the press box. Keyshawn able to pick up the loose ball, however. Keyshawn underneath the ham. Ham puts it up. No good. No foul call. Are you kidding me? Counsel the other way. He's going to lob to Dennis and threw it over his head. And Royce Ham can't believe he missed it. He also can't believe there wasn't a foul call. With Graney and Bischoff. ATN quickly in the front court. And oh they call a blocking foul on Keyshawn Gilbert. And Kevin Kruger cannot believe it. And oh my God. ETN lost the ball out of bounds. And Keyshawn Gilbert is beside himself on that call. And so are the Rebel coaches. I mean, that is absolutely, I mean, Keyshawn was there, ETN pushes off, and they call a foul on Gilbert. That is atrocious. On ESPN Las Vegas. 3.4 to go, Rebels with the final chance. Pass up ahead to Baker. Baker front court, Baker gets pushed down, no call, and a loose ball. No, oh my gosh. The Rebels have the game absolutely stolen from them. That was absolute larceny. You know, Jared, there are people listening that don't know what you're doing, and they're just going to think UNLV gets absolutely screwed in they every do. game they play. They do. That's, That's true. the evidence that I've never se- I don't watch UNLV games because they're on Facebook, and I don't have a Facebook. So inaccurate. That's... Have not been one on Facebook this year. I've been on YouTube. Absolute larceny. Ed Graney's out for the whole week. Filling in today is Mike Gramala. This is going to be an exciting show. Mike is eating a chocolate chip cookie for breakfast, so we are already off to a great start on the food conversations. It's Mike Gramala. It's going to be fun. Don't maybe not maybe don't lead off with exciting. That sets the bar pretty high for me. You're eating a chocolate chip cookie for breakfast. I am, but that's, that's as, like what every eight-year-old dreams of. That's as when exciting I grow as up, it's going to get. I'm going to eat a chocolate chip cookie for breakfast. It's actually two chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> which is even better. And a Coke. There was a Hershey's Kiss involved at one point. The first bite. How critical should we be of Kevin Kruger's first season? First year, bunch of new players. They're not very good. I don't think they're very bad either. Somewhere in between that. They've beaten all the bad teams on their schedule. And recently they've been blowing them out. But they've lost to all the good teams on their schedule. And a lot of those have been blowout losses. But it's his first year. And when we talk about being critical, this isn't like Kevin Kruger should be fired after one year. But evaluating the season as a failure of success. And coming to some sort of conclusion as to whether we think Kevin Kruger is going to be a good coach into the future for UNLV. We're not even into the conference portion of his first year, but how critical should we be, Mike? In terms of X's and O's and the game management stuff, which I think is the stuff that is valid for criticism, like that's stuff that if you want to talk about, you can hold them accountable for. I haven't seen anything that would concern me. This isn't like 
Marcus Mar- Arroyo <laughs> having to call timeouts before the first play of drives to avoid a delay a game. Yeah, that's been there's been some tan- the, like that stuff is tangibly bad. Or when Marvin Menzies came in and he was like, "We're going to revive the mid range jumper, and that's what we want to. We're going to practice it, and we're going to drill it, and that's what we want to run." It's like you can tell like that is not good X's and O's. But with Kruger, I think you've seen, at least I've seen, like a commitment to modern style basketball. He's maybe not as outwardly. Like he's he's not known for being the analytics guy as much as someone like TJ Otzelberger was, who you knew that was his, his shtick coming in. But he's enforced it. Like that's the offense they want to run. I think he's been creative enough. Some you know, sometimes by necessity in terms of he'll go small, he'll try different things, he'll play a little zone. He's tried to they you know when they need to heat up the ball, they'll put in Keyshawn Gilbert and they're trying to develop him like. They're doing different things, creative things. They're trying to make it work. I haven't seen anything tangibly that would have me concerned about him as an in-game coach. Like, that's just what I've seen through the first less than half of a season. I haven't either. And I I think Kevin Kruger, I think he is pretty big into the analytics. He just doesn't actually talk about it with the numbers that go with it. Exactly. He just, like, as he talks a lot about, like, not taking a dribble before a jumper or trying to force other teams to take a dribble before a jumper, which is, that's a big thing in analytics, right? Your points per possession, your points per shot go down a lot when you have to dribble before you take a jump shot. He doesn't bring up, Hey, you know, you lose 30% or something when you take a dribble before you shoot. He just is like, yeah, we don't want to do that. And we want to make the other team do that. And there's other things like that where recently it's been about get to the rim, right? That's the big thing where they're talking, where it's, obviously analytically influence. It's just not a, Hey, this is the exact points per possession. We're trying to accomplish. He doesn't speak in the jargon of analytics, analytics guys, such as yourself or TJ Otzenberger or Todd golden, or he's not going to come out and be like, you know, we were at 1.01 points possession. (laughs) We need to be at 1.25. And if you, we get them uh, in this range of the floor, they're, uh, efficiency numbers go down by 6%. Like he's, he doesn't talk like that. Which he's probably good. Like for, from the yes. standpoint of like, like, as a coach, getting it to your players, like that's probably a good thing to not overwhelm them with numbers. Yes. He's just delivering the message. It's a, it's probably the, his style seems to me like it's a need to know kind of thing. The players need to know where to shoot from on the floor. They don't maybe necessarily need to know the exact numbers because with players that stuff does not really stick with yeah. them. Like they, if you, you could throw a bunch of percentages and numbers at them and it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. But if you tell them, Hey, if you shoot from this spot on the floor, I'm going to bench you and pull you from the starting lineup. That's something that will stick with them. And we saw that's what worked with Bryce Hamilton. So on the idea of being critical, I don't, I think we're both on the same page as far as, Kevin Kruger as an actual coach, regardless of the roster, or the results, Kevin Kruger as an actual coach seems fine, seems solid so far. I don't think there's anything to, to be upset about, but as far as roster building goes, and as far as the success of this team, I feel like it's fair to be pretty critical, even though it's year one. And even though it's a bunch of new guys, the climate of college basketball now is you're going to have a lot of transfers. You're going to be in the transfer portal every single season. The idea that you're going to bring in a couple of guys or a handful of guys, and they're going to create this foundation for three years that that doesn't really exist in college basketball, right? It'll happen every now and then, but for the most part, you're going to be in the transfer portal. You're going to have big roster turnover every single year. So sure. It's his first year. And again, it's not about, Oh, Kevin Kruger, 
like should be fired if they don't have a good enough season or anything like that. But I do think it's fair to say so far, this season's been a disappointment because they have not shown up in a lot of the games against good teams. And even though it's a new team, Next year's probably going to be a new team too. Next year's probably going to have more transfers that come in and you can use that same excuse every single time you bring in a bunch of transfers, but that's probably the reality of roster building for Kevin Kruger from here on out. Well, the good thing is that I think he's embracing it like this. He's not, he doesn't have his head in the sand. Like Kevin Kruger, when he got the job, he was like, you know, I think he made it pretty clear that this is going to be a program built on transfers going forward. This is going to be, they don't ever want to be a young team. You know, the, uh, they're not going to, start out young and then get old and, <laughs> go, old and go through this process, they're going to be old right away. And you see it now, like this is his first year and they've got seniors everywhere. They've got, uh, you know, see, like I think the most games they start three seniors. Uh, uh, so it's high school recruiting. Basically, if you can get a top 100 guy or a guy that they think can come in and play as a freshman, they'll take those guys, but it's going to be transfers and, how 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 hard do you want to hit him for not getting the right combination of transfers in the first year to compete in the Mountain West? Right, like, and and it's not like again, it's not so much that oh Kevin Kruger failed and there's we don't think he can bring in the right combination of transfers, but he very clearly like th- there's very clearly some roster issues on this team. Like the biggest one to me so far is that offensively they look a lot like they did last year. They're so reliant on Bryce Hamilton to create offense and nobody else has really stepped up as a second option. This team is obviously more athletic, right? That's very clear, but they didn't find that other offensive piece, or at least we haven't seen it yet. I think, you know, Donovan Williams has looked really good. Mike Nuga has the potential still, even though I've been talking about that since before the season started. But I, I, I think that's sort of the fair thing is that we, we saw Kevin Kruger was here. We were here. We saw what a team with just Bryce Hamilton looked like. We knew what that was, and it wasn't very good. Kevin Kruger needed to add something to that. He needed to find the Elijah Mitru Long or the Amori Hardy to go along with Bryce Hamilton like they had two years ago. And so far, they haven't gotten that. Like, Mike Nuga's shown it for one game. And that, to me, is probably the biggest failure is to put so much on Bryce Hamilton again when we just saw that fail. I'm not ready to call that a failure just yet because the season, there's still a lot of season left to be played. And if you remember that, that season two years ago that you're pointing to where Elijah Mitru long became the, the second option and he was uh, great down the stretch. Bryce Hamilton wasn't even good until 10 games into that season or right around the start of Mountain West play when he really started to hit to hit his stride as that number one scorer. So I'm, I'm willing to give him a little more rope meaning Kevin Kruger, I'm willing to give him more rope in terms of I'm not ready to rule out that Donovan Williams could take the next step. I'm not ready to rule out that Mike Nuga could become that guy because we've seen flashes from those two players. It's got to be more consistent. It's got to be every night and not once a season. So it's going to be somewhere in between that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not ready to say like, it's a failure. Those guys didn't work out. Um, uh, let them leave in the off season, bring in new guys via the portal, try to get it right that way. I still think you, you, I don't think the season is hopeless by any means. Like I still think there's a chance those, those supporting players could grow into their roles. There's still, still some development to be done in coaching like that. I'm talking about coaching in a broader sense. Like how can you coach those guys up around Bryce Hamilton? Can you get them to play as second and third option? So I think Kruger, you're going to see more so in the the 
the Mountain West season, the rest of the season, you'll see his coaching ability on the floor with this team more than you have maybe in the first 10 games. And they've looked really good the last two games. Now, it's Seattle and Hartford, right? They're going to play much better competition. Doing it against Seattle and Hartford doesn't mean a whole lot. But if you go back to the first three games of the year, they didn't play very good teams then either, and the offense was horrific, right? The offense was terrible. The last two games, the offense has been very good. So there's certainly, even if you're just comparing how they played against bad teams, there's certainly been much better offensive games, and Nuga and Williams have been a big part of that. The thing that concerns me about Michael Nuga, this is a guy that didn't shoot mid-range jumpers at all. He's a, he's a get-to-the-rim and a three-point guy. He's still pretty much been that for UNLV, but he's finishing 46% at the rim this year. Like he, he's getting there, but he, he can't he's not, finish. he's not quite getting there. Okay, I, don't, getting I don't think he's, I don't think he's quite getting, I think you see a lot of, he, he turns the corner and he, on his man. And then there's a second guy at the rim that he, I don't know if this is lingering because of the, the ACL that he's coming back from, maybe not quite as explosive, but we're seeing a lot of like, I'm twisting and fading away from the, the rim and I'm going high off the glass over someone to finish. And those are hard to finish. Um, maybe if he's a hundred percent, he can explode directly to the rim a little more, or maybe he finishes more of those shots, but I, it's just, he's, he's getting, he's creating a lot of shots around the rim, but they're difficult finishes. He's leaving himself all, all uh, a very difficult shot to, to make. And so I don't think he's quite there yet, which is to me concerning about, Hey, is this guy going to be a consistent, like number two option that can do that is we need to see it. And we haven't seen it yet to where if he's going to be finishing 46% around the rim, that's. That's just not good enough. It's not. What about, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, who else could be if it's not him. I mean, it's Donovan Williams. It's, he's taken the second most shots on the team, too. And he's he's clearly got the ability to beat a guy off closeout and get to the paint. I thought you were going to say he's clearly got the green light because but, he does. Well, yes, he does have much more of a green light than I would have expected. But, hey, to be fair, he's shooting, like, 36% from three, which is way better than his career That's numbers. very. That was, that's a surprising number and a good number. Maybe that bodes well for him going forward. Like, you saw him against Hartford. Like, there were some plays where he just drove to the rim like there was no one there. And maybe that says more about Hartford than it does about Probably. Donovan Williams. And, yeah. Um, but he didn't do it in the first three games of the year when they were also playing bad teams either, so... Slight development, slight progress. Well, you got two guys. We, we, we singled in on two guys, Mike Nuga, Donovan Williams. Maybe you don't need both of them. Maybe you just need them to trade it off. Like if the two of them combined can give you on any given night, one of them steps up to give you 20 points. Like maybe you can cobble it together that way. Um, if your defense comes through, I think we've seen some defensive slippage with this team yeah. as the season has, has gone on. They're not quite as locked down or uh, as they were earlier in the year. But if they can get back to that and get back to that formula they want to play, maybe one and a half scorers is enough. Mike Gramala is in for Ed Graney all day today. Coming up next. Oh, Monday night football. The Rams are back. My initial reaction was you got to be me. You know, I don't want to get too far into it, but I mean, when you find out five hours before you kick off, you know, on Saturday morning, we find out we're losing three really important players and Havenstein, double D and Daryl Henderson. And then on Monday morning, you say, oh, by the way, now you're losing Jalen Ramsey and Tyler Higby. And so can't say enough about just the guy's ability to not flinch. You don't replace those kind of guys, but that's why you have 48 guys that play on game day. And we certainly used everybody today and really proud of these guys. Proud to be associated with this group and, and just be a small part. Sean McVay. Rams won last night. They beat the Cardinals. Um, big win for the Rams because otherwise the Cardinals would have basically had that division locked up. 
but the Rams are now just one game back of the Cardinals for the NFC West. Also only one game back of Tampa Bay and Green Bay uh, for the top record in the NFC. Um, all right, let's start. Let's start with questioning coaches. Cardinals were down 10, 524 to play. They had a fourth and one at the Rams 37 yard line. Matt Prater had already made two 53-yard field goals. They could have attempted another 54-ish yard field goal, but they went for it and got stopped on fourth and one. Should they have kicked the field goal to get within seven? I would have kicked the field goal personally, but I feel like I'm always in the minority on those type of decisions. Like I feel like What are you, some conservative anti-math guy? No, but I want to I, I'm one of those people that wants to extend the game as long as possible. Dude, like if I if I'm down 15, logic. if I'm that's down 15 bad. and I score a touchdown, you go. I'm two. going for the point at the oh, point after. Man. I'm not taking. I'm not oh. going for two Who until I you? need to. Who are you? I'm just saying. As a that's so I probably would have kicked it um, cowardly uh, and tried to get it. <laughs> and tried to get it. To, tried to get it to seven. I because I I just want to be in the game. But that's just me. I feel like you're just. He you're probably just, made the right call to go for it. You're just prolonging losing though. I and I said that's my goal. I said I want to prolong. I don't want to prolong losing. I just want to prolong you're my to chances. Win the game. I just want to stay in the game as long as you're I can. to win the game. If I'm down by 10. But if I'm down by 10, I want to give myself a chance. Let's get it to a one-score game and then let's see what happens from there. I I probably would have ended up kicking the field goal. But the reason you go for it is because it's fourth and one. Yes. That's like, why you go for it. If it's fourth it and six, seven, something like that, it's pretty, probably pretty obvious you're kicking the field goal there. But the fourth and one part makes it like, oh, yeah, we're going to pick up a yard. Like, it's like that's how you're thinking as a coach. So I don't really blame Kingsbury too much for that one. However, I think I probably kick it because this is different from the down 15 going for two conversation. But you need, basically, in this scenario, if you're the Rams, you need to score twice and get a stop in between, right? That's what you need to do. Now, kicking the field goal, you are admittedly playing for the tie. And that's the other part of this conversation. You kick the field goal in that scenario. You're basically saying my best case scenario is to score a touchdown and go to overtime where you, you got a coin flip basically at winning the game. So you're playing for a 50-50 shot at winning. Going for it. If you get it and you go down and score and you get the ball back now, you could score again and win the game without even going to overtime. But if I'm down 10, giving, you know, and then giving myself a 50-50 chances, I'll I'll take that. I think what you could probably criticize more so than the decision to go for it was maybe the play call. Yes. Like if you've got Kyler Murray, like don't you want him involved in that play yeah. somehow rather James than Connor. just handing it off Touchdown and then watching? Yeah. I'd rather Kyler Murray maybe run around, do something, get him Run around. Yeah. Like you I, I would want him involved in the play in some it's a way. Fair play call. I, yeah, I would love I would love well what was the play call there? Run around a bit, just sort of you know, see if I can do something. Works like seventy percent of the time. You've seen Kyler Murray out there. So the or the the Cardinals though, they actually end up getting a field goal in the final minute, and they got a chance to go and tie the game, despite all of this, because they recovered an onside kick. This week there were four recovered onside kicks in the NFL. In the previous 13 weeks of the season, there had only been four. Now, the NFL has changed rules on kickoffs and onside kicks to what you can and can't do, where guys have to be lined up, and it has severely decreased the amount of onside kicks that were recovered until this weekend. All of a sudden, teams are having no problem recovering onside kicks. 
We had it, was it last year or two years ago, where it was like 1% of onside kicks were recovered. And like Young Way Koo was responsible for like all but one of them in the entire NFL. There needs to be a, a not high, but a fair, a relatively high conversion rate on onside kicks. Like you need, like, what do you think the right percentage is? Like you, you got to have at least like a 10% chance to recover an onside kick. Otherwise it's just, it, it, it's pointless. I'm, I, it doesn't, if it dropped down to zero, like that's okay with me. I don't see why the kicking team, uh, I don't see why the kicking team has, uh, is entitled to they're not, they're a good chance to record it, to, to recover 10. it. What? It's not good. It's yeah. still bad. But I don't even see why you're entitled to a 10% chance. Like it, it is what the, you know, the, it will be, end up being, it'll settle in at whatever it settles in at whatever's sustainable. Um, how did he, so this kick that he did was like sort of a, a dribbler, like a line, straight like a, a straight ahead. Yeah. You make one, you make two guys try to field it and you keep it low to the ground the whole time. And that seemed to work. And I think like it goes through back in, back in the day when the conversion rate was higher, it was, you know, you tried to drag the ball and it would bounce. And then like the third bounce would be really high. And then for a while teams did like the, you pound it straight into the ground for one high hop. And that worked for a while. And then they legislated that out. And now they've got this new thing where you can only have so many guys on the side. So you got to go, you got to pick one guy, try to get the ball to him, but make it difficult to field. And then you converge and try to get it. And whatever the percentage of recovery percentage ends up being with that type of onside kick, that's what it should be. Like, I, I don't see how you, why it has to be higher than that. I just, it, they're just, okay. The problem is, is we went through, we've been in like until this weekend, like a two year stretch of the NFL where, oh, you need an onside kick and you game's over. I didn't, that was it, which I get it play better in the first 59 minutes of the game. And you don't need an onside kick, but from an entertainment standpoint, if a team scores a touchdown down two scores with like nine or with like 60 seconds left, I want the, the 10% chance that, Oh my God, they can get the ball. I don't need that. I do. I don't, I don't need that way more fun. Otherwise you're, you're, like it's pointless. Not every game has to go down to the final seconds. But it'd be better where, if they did. What are you talking? Uh, about? I don't know if it would be better. I'd, yes, it would. I'd rather have the score be an accurate representation of what happened on the field that day. If you lost by ten points, you lost by ten like, points. I don't want to gimmick the onside kicks so that you get an extra chance and like you can. There's always still a chance. That's like. It's not quite as that's like saying, oh, we should have make it a four pointer in the NBA in the final two minutes or make it a five pointer so that there's always a chance to come back. Why do you always deserve a chance to come back? I don't see that the onside kick will end up being what it's being. I don't need that to be like a deciding factor in a game when it works once in a while. Hey, it's a surprise. 10% it's great. is once in a while. Okay, and if that's what it ends up being, the percentage when it stabilizes with these new formations, which coaches will make it stabilize, they'll figure out the best way to do it, the best way to block it and receive it and kick it. If it's 10%, I'll live with that. But I don't see a, I don't need onside kicks to be a big part of the game. I don't want a game to be decided by an onside kick, basically. I, I, I don't think the game should be decided by any type of kicking. No kicking whatsoever. It's not decided. They recovered it last night and still didn't win. It just gave them... Three plays at tying the game, and ex- which is more exciting. And Otherwise, excited. you would have gotten two kneels. Yeah, that's the true outcome. I'm not a data scientist over here needing a true result. I'm here for entertainment. Okay, <laughs> then, then I then you wait for that out. You spend 59 minutes waiting for that onside kick. Yeah, to be entertained. Fun. All right, coming up next, David Roth joins the show. We're happy to talk to him. He just seems happy to talk to anyone. David Roth from The Defector is with us on the Press Box. 
subscribe to The Distraction on Stitcher and use the promo code DISTRACT for a free month of Stitcher Premium. All right, David, I got big hopes for this question. How many dishwashers do you currently have? Well, I'm happy to report, first of all, this is a, we're like celebrating one beautiful month <laughs> of this being a bit on the show. We have one dishwasher hey, in the apartment. Hey, good Ask job. me if it works. <laughs> oh, God. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> it doesn't work? The issue, it, it, we're, everything's fine except for the fact that it doesn't have any electricity going through it because oh my God. <laughs> you got to get everything in my apartment. Apparently all the, uh, the, the technology and the, it, you know, especially in this case, the electrical stuff was all installed by uh, James Madison's dad in uh, 1696. <laughs> so you need to, we need to get a new sort of current to this for this to be put in. Also, that's the one type of contractor we had not yet paid in this experience. So, <laughs> Uh, at some point, we'll get an electrician in here. Presumably, at the time that I hand him a check, some confetti will fall from the ceiling, and then I'll be able to uh, wash a plate in a machine. So, for those that of that's you, honestly probably 2022, though. <laughs> for those of you that haven't followed the dishwasher saga, David Roth has had 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 two dishwashers in his place for over a month. Uh, he needed to talk to apparently 17 different people to get one dishwasher taken out, another one put in. And hooked up, and now you're telling me that you've got to talk to like an 18th different person because the electricity is important. And like what? Like you'd lose electricity. Do you have do you have electricity to everything else in your place? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. It's just the outlet on the wall. It's just, there's a lot of. I, I called an electrician and talked to him about it, and he was like, "Yeah, that's not hard." And I told him what building it was. He's like, "Oh, they got a lot of rules there." And I was like, "Buddy, <laughs> do not do not get me started on this." And it really. It's, I mean, that's basically what it is, that, like, everybody is worried about, like, to a certain extent, they're worried about liability, which is fine. I don't want to mess around with electricity either, uh, and not just because I don't want to get yelled at by the, you know, co-op board, although that's a big part of it. There's also, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that is complicated. It's just incredible how much more complicated it is than I would have ever <laughs> anticipated. I would have thought you could get one person to do this, but instead it's like, everybody's got to fax something to somebody else. Like it's all very, it's really like 85% bureaucracy and then like 15% manual labor. Uh, any of your neighbors mad that the whole water had to be shut off in the building? No, because they, this is like, I guess normal that it had to get shut off in our line, but there was like three other things happening above and below me that needed the same stuff. So presumably this just goes on all the time and I don't notice it. Like I should just be like, running a sink all the time to get a sense of how often they shut it off. But yeah, uh, surprisingly um, very little pushback from the neighbors. I think at this point, um, you know, just seeing that gnarly old dishwasher sitting on the curb in front of the building. I mean, not everybody knows my story. It's mostly uh, (laughs) listeners to sports radio morning shows in Las Vegas and people that are close to me. But I think that they would have felt a great sense of accomplishment seeing it there on the curb instead of, uh, you know, sitting in the living room with, like, my gloves and hat sitting on it. Uh, how often do you do, use your dishwasher? Because I have one, but I don't remember the last time I used it because it's just me and my girlfriend, and we we don't use that much, so we just wash it by hand. Yeah, it takes a couple of days for us to, to fill it up, mostly, you know, so for, you know, several days. So, I don't know, a couple times a week. I feel like once we have it, like, plugged in, it's going to be, like, we're not going to run it just for yucks, but, like, I can't promise you I'm not going to do that once. Like, just to listen to that engine purr, you know, <laughs> like, and enjoy the uh, the apparently unimaginable luxury of having an in-unit 
dishwasher. Uh, please do so when you talk to us. Uh, yeah, I, first... I, at some point I want your listeners and also you to be able to hear that like <laughs> sort of rinky-dink motor and sloshing sound that you get when you run a dishwasher. All right, important question for you, slightly less important than the dishwasher. <laughs> Do you like onside kicks, and do you think a high high percentage of them are recovered? I do like them. I feel like it's so you're just because of the the Prater kick last night. Well, a, okay, a really good one, I thought. So Mike Ramallah is filling in Fred Graney today, and somehow mm-hmm. we ended up arguing about if onside kicks should be recoverable. For some reason, Mike wants the true outcome of the game and doesn't <laughs> want an onside kick to be recovered. See, I like onside kicks because, I mean, like, in the same way that I sort of, uh, like, despite whatever I'm supposed to say as, like, a baseball knower or whatever, there's a part of me that still likes bunts, too. I just like <laughs> things that kind of, like, look stupid and are hard, you know? Like, I feel like it adds some texture to the the game. I, like, it doesn't offend me when a team does onside kicks. If they only did onside kicks, I think I would probably be more irritated by it. What's funny to me is just, like, a guy whose skill set is take the ball accurately as far as you can over and over again. But then also the other thing you have to know how to do is kick the ball off the bottom of your shoe such that it like hops in the air once and then lands point up. And then once someone on your team can grab it, like they just seem like the most disconnected possible things that a person could be asked to do for work. And yet Matt Prater did both really well last night. Wasn't enough, but it was still like that last one was like an admirably dorky onside kick to me. Uh, is there a manager in Major League Baseball that would call all his other coaches losers? That's a great question. I think the Urban Meyer mindset is unique to football. And I think also like unique to college football. That like for all the maniacs that coach in the NFL and like like to get on the record, like Bill Belichick to me seems like probably one of the craziest people to hold a job in the United States, like just does not seem like a guy that would ordinarily be like, like he couldn't work at a Quiznos. Like he could only be the head coach of an NFL team. <laughs> like in any like normal retail capacity, he wouldn't be able to hold it down. But Myers, like everything that I hear coming out of there, which I mean, there's a part of me that kind of wants him to stay for another year, just because I feel like it's going to get so good. <laughs> like we're going to get so much Season weird two. stuff out of it. But everything that I've heard there makes it seem like he could only, like, the other job that Urban Meyer could have would be, like, a billions style, like, running a hedge fund. But even there, I don't think he would necessarily do very well. Showing up and instantly big-timing everyone you hire and all of your players and then barely doing your job, like, that is football coach mindset and only football coach mindset. When he apparently talked to Jay Glazer and confirmed that he called his assistant coaches losers, but refuted that he got into an argument with Marvin Jones. Was that him trying to be like, well, if I admit to this one bad thing, they'll believe me about the other bad thing when I tell them I didn't do it. Yeah, that actually does have that kind of feel of like a Nixon style, like limited hangout. But they're like, all right, so like obviously I was extremely rude to like all of these people who are important to my success. But I do want to get on the record about this one comparatively picky thing. I mean, I don't know if it's the idea that because he hasn't gone. I think because he still has a job, he hasn't done the thing that most people do now when they get caught being jerks or, you know, just being impossible to work with, which is like play like sort of some kind of like fake news card, you know, and be like, well, I'm very biased against Urban Meyer. They don't want to see me flourishing or whatever. Like he hasn't done that yet. 
Uh, and I, I guess that's just him keeping his powder dry because I, I think he's absolutely that type of guy. In this case, though, the idea of trying to go like case by case on all of the many feuds and shouting matches that you've had with your coworkers and you know people working under you, like once you have to like run down a five bullet list and explain that like three of them are true, one of them is complicated, and one of them is false, like you're in a bad spot once they once they hand you the list. Like the horse has left the barn. All right. Do you think Ben Simmons actually gets traded in the near future or is all these reports about teams that are interested just going to fizzle eventually and he's still in purgatory not playing in the NBA? So I've been trying to figure that out because I, we're fascinated at uh, Defector with the broader Shams Charania experience, his pro style, his the way that, uh, that scoops sort of come out and they're, they're written like police reports. Like there's a lot of passive construction. You're kind of like, what was effectuated here? What happened? <laughs> like just really strange language. And so he'd been writing about Kyrie coming back and the language there is like so qualified that you can tell that there's nothing happening. The Simmons stuff, I want to believe that he's just going to sit all season. Like it really didn't feel, it felt to me like Morty overplayed his hand very much in that and was, you know, going to, to lose out. And yet like, it kind of feels like there's a chance of it happening now. Like he's not, not getting traded to the Lakers or anything like that. And the teams that, you know, I thought the Pacers seemed like a good fit earlier in the season. They seem very uh, much at this point bound to blow it up entirely. And I don't think that, that he's a part of that, but the, as the Blazers get worse and as the situation there becomes more untenable, the easier it is for me to imagine something getting worked out there. But it's still strange. I mean, like, as I was saying, like, there's never been, like, a clear declarative English sentence saying there's momentum towards a trade here and it's <laughs> going to happen. Like, it's all the sort of thing where, like, sources close to this guy wonder if there might not be, you know, and it's all at some point, like, you realize that you're not actually assimilating information. You're just watching scoops get laundered. Wait, have you guys posted a story on Sham Sharnia and his pros? Yes, Giddy okay. Nathan has done it. But he, so this is, I guess I can, I can say this. We all, everybody's got a Shams voice that they can write in and slack. And so whenever like a real <laughs> Shams bomb drops, and not necessarily in terms of news, but in terms of like a sentence with nine commas in it, and like <laughs> the, the verb is the last word to appear in it. Like when that happens, we will all sort of, uh, do a little little sham cipher and go back and forth with it. But I definitely recommend Giddy's column because it is like an attempt to take the style seriously. And, uh, you know, that's basically psychedelic experience. It's like trying to like get into that sentence and be like, all right, what are we actually dealing with here? Like it wasn't written to withstand that kind of scrutiny. It's like watching a Hallmark movie and trying to write like a scholarly essay about it. Uh, here's what I want next week. Uh, I would like you to open the segment uh, with a sham style update on your dishwasher. Yeah, I'm going to have to write it um, <laughs> because it's really like it's not uh, it's, it's not an oral storytelling <laughs> tradition. Like This is definitely one that like I have to write it in the notes app on my phone and then uh, read it. But I'm going to try that. That I appreciate it. There will be no new news on the dishwasher. I, I can tell you that right now. But um, I can. I'm going to try to find a way to report it so that it sounds like there is. <laughs> well, he is David Roth from Defector. David, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thanks, David. So, David Roth and his dishwasher saga is one of the favorite, my favorite parts of the show. Uh, we've done this for. It's he's said it's a month. I think we're pushing two. 
Like, he, I think he's underselling how long we've been talking to him about his dishwasher. I'm pretty sure it got delivered. He just, like, mentioned it sometime in the beginning of November. I think we're at least six weeks in of, well, it was a table for a while there. Uh, Mike, do you use a dishwasher? Uh, I've never used one, but I have one. But now hold after on, this, on. I'm afraid to turn it on. <laughs> you, wait, you've never used one or just I've like ne- where you currently I've live? I've never used one. Did you grow up with a dishwasher? No. I was always a wash-it-by-hand kid. Interesting. And now I'm a wash-it-by-hand adult. And now I just don't want the grief that comes with, what if I turn it on and it blows up and then I have to spend two months getting them carted in and out of my house and all that? I don't want to go through that. Okay. I mean, I grew up, like, we had a dishwasher that we used, but I don't use it now because there's two of us and we rarely cook, so it's not like we have a ton of dishes anyways. That was actually my question is like, you guys own enough dishes to fill a dishwasher? Right. Like, by like, the time I, got, I fill I up got a dishwasher, two plates and yeah. they're rotating. And I just don't trust it. What like, don't you trust? If about I'm going to eat off a plate and eat with silverware, I want to be the one, <laughs> I want to pack my own parachute. Like, I want to be the one scrubbing those dishes. So oh. if he gets sick, he can blame himself. I've always trusted. I don't have a trust issue with my dish, but I've used one growing up, unlike you, apparently. So I can see, I can understand how Mike Ramallah would be afraid of something new. It's, I can follow that. It's automated to the point where I just, I don't think it can get into all the nooks and crannies. I don't see how it's possible. It, it literally fills with water. Like the entire thing, if it's the type that I'm thinking of, it fills to the brim with water. But still, you got to get in there. You, you know? You got to get, get in, in there. there. How many plates do you have? Uh, I've got eight plates. Okay. Oh. One for each day of the week plus yeah. one to rotate. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. All right. Coming up next. What is coming up next? We'll continue to play both guys. Uh, I think Sam's a couple weeks away from a week to two weeks away from being ready to play. Uh, so you know we'll continue to play both guys. Um, I thought Jeff did a nice job yesterday. I thought the tempo was there. I thought there were guys open. Um, some of the better passing, one of the better passing days we've had. They are apparently going to keep playing PJ Walker and Cam Newton. They just don't want to pick an actual starting quarterback. Sounds a lot like a team that we cover here in Las Vegas on a regular basis. But. More importantly, I have a new favorite quarterback in the NFL, and his name is Mac Jones. Tweet from Ryan Hannibal. Mac Jones apparently was asked his favorite Christmas song. He said, I don't really have one, but anything like Taylor Swift and Christmas because of my girlfriend, I don't have one for you guys. He was also asked favorite Christmas movie, and he said, no, I need to watch more movies, though. I love you, Mac Jones, because I couldn't answer either one of those questions. I don't have a favorite Christmas song or a favorite Christmas movie. I knew that would be right up your alley. <laughs> I knew you would immediately latch on to that. That's like, is this a new generation that we're going to see more of in the future? Like, that do don't you, watch movies? Yeah, do young people just not watch movies the way that older people do? I would say uh, the opposite, just because the access to streaming, they're going to watch more movies. It's just they're going to be like more like weird movies that you're like I, I don't get it but it, the the culture of sitting down for two hours and carving it out and watching movies as they come out is i don't i don't feel like is Damn millennials uh, as important with their short attention spans i'm not saying that i'm just saying it's not as important yeah, to people as it millennials are like 45 now <laughs> movies used to be I'm a communal a thing and I, I feel like it's moving away from that well you'll see more and more players be like movies i don't really watch movies which would be absurd to an older person to say, oh, I don't really watch movies. That's like saying you don't listen to music, which apparently Mac Jones does neither of. That's why Quibi was so, such a great hit. Only 10 minutes. Uh, what is that? Oh, it was, it's, it was it's, a streaming platform for like 
10 minute oh, episode okay. 10 minute shows right okay. it, it went out of business less than six months yeah. after its launch <laughs> after it spent all of its money it failed very very quickly <laughs> on the idea that people want to watch for 10 minutes and then be done with things um well okay what's your favorite christmas movie gremlins gremlins am i supposed Have to you know seen what gremlins? that is he, oh. i don't know what that is it's Oh, that's gremlins? gremlins has not permeated the culture enough that you would get it. You would recognize part. You would recognize like the the creatures themselves. Yeah, I was I gonna think. say like think if uh, Yoda was the guy from Deal or No Deals in it. He's the voice of the main gremlin. Yeah. Oh, okay. He looks like a Furby. You tell me yeah. that's not a Furby. <laughs> kind of, but anyways, that that is my favorite Christmas movie. You don't have one, I'm guessing. That's about Christmas. It is well. This little guy's about Christmas. It's Christmas adjacent. He's a Christmas gift. He's given as a Christmas gift, and then the whole thing unfolds over Christmas. There's a someone is dragged into a Christmas tree. There's all kinds of like it's it's very it's not it's not like Die Hard where it's like obliquely they reference Christmas once or twice. This is a movie set in and hey, around Christmas. Hey, Die Hard it, it happens during a Christmas party. Uh, maybe he I'm, literally um, writes ho ho ho. Now I have a machine gun. I'm trying to just. Think of Christmas movies that I've seen, and I'm having a hard time thinking of them. Like I know I've seen some, but like like I've seen The Grinch. Have you seen those Christmas specials, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? Like the bad cartoons? Yeah, the claymation and stuff. Claymation, that's what it is. Yes, I don't know that I've sat down and watched it, but I've certainly seen them. I don't know where his parents were. I have seen Die Hard. So what do you do? Okay, there you go. Die Hard. Die Hard's a Christmas So when you're a kid, what do you do during Christmas time? I don't remember. Not that. Oh, you're a kid. You don't remember your your, Christmases from your childhood? Not really. I've got a very bad memory. Like, like when I'm eight, I don't remember things that happened when I was eight. I guess you don't have to remember the specific thing, but it's Christmas. You don't. I, I don't know. I'm, maybe that's just the way things are going. Now, you and Mac Jones have no Christmas right. memories. I love Mac Jones. We don't need Christmas movies to be perfectly functioning members of society. Mm.